Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. It so usually is. Like, like my face will be frozen like this. And then you'll all know, oh, Cody's connection got interrupted. Well, the problem there is that, Cody, whenever you're not speaking, you are holding your face looking exactly like that. So it would be very it's difficult a really bad habit, to tell. Frankly. Also, yeah. I'm not like, a very active listener. I'm always just like, yeah, sitting there very Extremely stone-faced. Yeah. You are the best podcaster of us all, and it's because you don't ever listen. You just share. Um, no, the other thing that you've been doing, and I really like the bit, but it does lead me to a great deal of technical confusion sometimes, is whenever we start talking about video games lately, a listener, you won't know this because you're not here, <laughs> he goes off camera and goes on mute and I don't know where the fuck he is. And I think, oh no, has it broken? Is he lost? No, it's just because Harry brought up Yakuza 0 or right. uh, Aaron brought up Yakuza I don't even Ishii. know what I would bring up uh, for this. I don't know maybe what those are, but continue. For this Assassin's movie? Assassin's Creed 2 would probably be the most obvious pull. Uh, maybe a little bit too obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dante's Inferno video game. Do you remember that one? I remember from, that one. Oh yeah, my do goodness. You remember the, I remember uh, the book. The commercial where they used Ain't No Sunshine When He's Gone. Or when she's gone. I don't uh, remember that. It was that. a Super Bowl so commercial sick. for Dante's Inferno. Uh, it's so good. You should look it up. The game is not good, obviously. Uh, but um, that commercial fucking rocks. Uh, it was like so a God I of War ripoff, right? Yeah, it was exactly that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I played the demo. Except back you played as 3. the historical poet Dante Alighieri, except that <laughs> in that version, he was not a poet, but instead a soldier from the Crusades. It, it rocked. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was the really gigantic cross, that, uh, cross-shaped scar on his chest. Anyway. Uh-huh. We have a movie to talk about uh, here on Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw, Dante's Inferno, the video game for PlayStation 3, and people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. That's also a place where you can get cool tickets, cool merch, cool news about everything going on at the Trilon, including reading their blog, Perisphere. Find that in the links in their little menus and hamburgers and hot dogs menus. I'm not going to point you there. You can get there yourself. You're probably an adult if you're listening to this. I hope you are because we say the word fuck a lot. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, oh, gee, I didn't even come up with a quote. I'm sorry. Wow. Uh, my, I, I accept full responsibility for this sin. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Yeah, hamburgers and hot dogs. You're making me hungry. I'm Cody Narvison, always ready for love and the law. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin, and as longtime listeners will know, I'll find a take if I have to rip this fucking podcast apart like a fucking sock. And you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, look forward to the sock. And uh, but before then, we have a special guest to introduce. Thank you so much, Kelly Krantz, for coming back to the podcast to talk about a, a wonderfully Italian movie. Kelly, uh, tell us where we, people can find you. Hey, I'm Kelly. I'm on Twitter at Kranzakaga underscore. I'm on Letterbox as Lucky Haas, and I'm going to bust this thing wide open. Fuck yes. Yes, we are. We're going to bust this thing wide open. This thing being today's film, uh, you'll notice one voice missing from the podcast. Uh, rest in peace. But we have uh, – the show must go on. We have uh, we have a, a regular segment wherein we um, – it's the licensed version of the patented Aaron Grossman summary, which I have fortunately pushed, put together about five minutes ago. I apologize if anybody did. I already slapped one together. 
Um, you must augment if something goes wrong in this in this uh, summary. You must let me know so that I can like. It, it's a whole contract and licensing deal with AG Enterprises. We got to figure that out. Uh, I, uh, for right I now. must say, I I do very much appreciate the completely unwarranted faith that would lead you to suggest that perhaps Cody or I would have created a summary <laughs> in Aaron's stead. But both both of y'all are such dedicated people, uh, and we have a wonderful uh, guest today. I don't hey, know. At it, least it, I had a quote. Buster. Yeah, so. I guess I'll 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 try harder next time to make this podcast happen. Uh, today's film is Revolver, uh, known regionally as Blood in the Streets and In the Name of Love, is a 1973 film in the Poliziotteschi genre, directed by Sergio Solima. Uh, it d- stars Oliver Reed and Fabio Testi as Vito and Milo, a prison warden and a low-level criminal, respectively, whose lives are brought together when an unknown organization blackmails Vito by kidnapping his wife and demanding Milo's release. Uh, Vito decides to keep Milo until the handoff, but the shadowy kidnappers stay one step ahead of their plans until Vito finally decides to start using Milo's connections to get the upper hand. Uh, the film is uh, also notable. There's not a whole lot in this that I was able to find on, the, on this movie's like contemporary release. It made like 400 and some million lira. I have no idea how much that is in American dollars or how much that is in 23, 23 American dollars. This is why we need uh, Aaron Grossman back. At something. There's $15 as Cody uh, posits. Do we want to have a price? Well, right? but to, to be fair in 2023, that's like the Italian at least $400,000 or something. Right. I, Cody, I believe that's how it takes Add a zero to that. If, to, um, if yeah, today's $4 million, if today's quick converter found, I guess the Italian lira is not a piece of actual like currency anymore. They use the Euro there. And so if you had like that many lira, I globalists, think, I think they're worth about like $36. If <laughs> you had 400 and some, million right now because they're completely useless but the film is also notable uh beyond making 400 million lira at the box office uh for the use of one of its uh score tracks uh composed by ennio morricone it's called un amico which was later film excuse me featured in the 2009 film inglorious bastard direct uh written uh quentin dentarantine by written directino uh we have a very special guest on this episode of the podcast and i'd like to start with her thoughts if you don't mind kicking us off kelly yeah, for sure. I was really excited to be on this one because I like Italian crime movies, Poliziotteschi, Eurocrime, Giallo, thrillers, all that. So basically, as soon as this one was announced, I let Harry know, like, please let me be on one. And I, I wanted to be on Revolver because I had seen it before. I saw it, I guess, in March uh, 2019. Thank you, Letterboxd, for that stat. Um, I love Oliver Reed. As an actor, as a person, he's not a very nice person. <laughs> Important uh, clarification. <laughs> I do, I do love that. Like the only piece of trivia about this movie available on the internet is that Oliver Reed showed up to set drunk every day and eventually got into a car accident while filming because he was so inebriated. Which yeah, then and he injured bla- Carlotta, yeah. the character Carlotta. <laughs> yeah, literally blackened her eyes, and if you believe what Wikipedia says, uh, actually forced her to wear sunglasses for the rest of filming. So any scene that you see her in with sunglasses was filmed after the car accident he got them into uh anyway we all derailed you kelly uh keep us going (laughs) no that's great uh i was definitely thinking of that anecdote i also read that uh he was getting really frustrated at having to do a couple takes trying to take fabio testi's handcuffs off that he slammed the keys down into a sewer grate and then he just had to wear handcuffs for a few hours while they try to figure (laughs) out what to do about that uh it really comes across in his acting style that he's you know basically belligerently drunk uh in real life all the time and he looks like he's just about ready to explode with all his repressed rage like uh harry's quote of the uh i'm gonna gonna turn this town inside out and shake it like a fucking sock he says (laughs) it's just like (laughs) 
wow, that is exactly the kind of line you want to give to Oliver Reed. Uh, so I was excited to do this one. Um, you know, Harry and I saw it at the Trilon and the print was not very good, unfortunately. Oh, no. It's fun to see it on film, uh, but it was really pink print. And then I know the projectionist was fighting for her life during one of the reels to keep it in focus because the film was also warped. Uh, still cool to see it in the theater. I mean, it's a fun experience for sure. Um, so yeah, I, you know, was excited to talk about it. I like Italian movies. I love the dynamic between Oliver Reed and Fabio Testi's characters. Uh, we kind of alluded to before starting recording, a little homoerotic in some ways, kind of romantic, uh, real odd couple. Um, but that, you know, that good chemistry between them is just so appealing. And I think that the movie has a lot of, uh, characteristics of the kinds of movies that came out of the years of lead too. So I just thought this would be the perfect one to talk about. I think it is too. Um, it really did that second half that you're talking about uh, where like some of those character interactions really start to come to fruition that really we get just time with Vito and Milo. Well, and a supporting cast of characters, but like meaningfully being developed Vito and Milo is really set up. I don't know if intentionally, but for my watching experience, uh, sleepy little baby boy over here as resident SLBB of the podcast had to fall. I fell asleep right about the midway point. The first time I tried to watch this movie a couple of nights ago, um, I did not get to see it at the trial on. Uh, I was out of town while it was still playing, but I watched it at home on Tubi Tubi, to be or not to be is not no longer a question. It is, it is simply to be. Um, and I, yeah, I fell asleep right before I think it got really interesting. I went back and started it over again the next day and really found myself way more captivated by the second half than it was by the first, because the first is, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is only my second Poliziotesky, and I'm not super familiar with generally Italian filmmaking, but this did not have hallmarks of like great filmmaking until about the halfway point for me. Like, and it was just in the narrative and the story, a lot of the preamble, a lot of the setup is very, it feels almost rote uh, in a way, like kidnapped, going to go save my friggin' wife, going to go, going to leverage this uh, friggin' um, prisoner in my uh, prison to, to arrange her release, going to, you know, threaten and uh, barter my way through and like, you know, the power of the gun type thing. It just didn't grab me in a very like meaningful way. And it just wasn't, incredible to look at even the 2b version which i think must be like a 720p version or something like that wasn't that like beautiful or incredible to see until things start to open up between Vito and milo and we start to get them sort of interplaying and having like a lot of compromises on either end there's a lot to say about that relationship i think but in the first half uh, i'm not gonna lie they lost me in the first half is what they did and then finally picked it up on the second uh harry did that echo your experience at all or did you have yeah it actually really does and i'm glad that we started here because i wanted to ask kelly about that a little bit i think that um unfortunately like as again longtime listeners will know we're kind of ignoramuses when it comes to any particular genre um so i think that uh um, Confessions of a Police Captain might have been kind of a uniquely bad Poliziotesky to start off with in some ways. Um, at least that's my perception of it, because that is sort of like the can award winning Oscar nominated version of a Poliziotesky, right? In that it's like much tighter, much more a character study, much more sort of prestige filmmaking in the sort of big capital P scare quotes version. Whereas to me, this movie Revolver, aka Blood in the Streets, aka in the name of love is like kind of a much better start starting point in the sense that like my perception of Poliziotesky's is that this is not prestige filmmaking, right? This was not filmmaking that was meant to sort of like be like high art in a lot of senses. It was sort of like 
Pulp Fiction, right? It was sort of like dime store serials, sort of like ripped from the headlines, like highly sort of um, exciting, raucous filmmaking. And I think that this movie does like a is a much more traditional version of that in that like the character tropes like pop out, right? There is this incredible character, uh, Milo, um, who is like so just a movie character in that he's like he's like a D&D rogue, right? In that he's like this professional class criminal who is somehow also not really a like major criminal even though it's all he's ever done with his life. Yeah. The um, word I the is, word I typed out to describe him in my notes was puckish because he's right. just such an imp. Sort of like Svengali like and like super lovable and nonetheless just a a complete ne'er-do-well of the sort that like Anybody who knows anything about, like, crime will tell you that's not a person who exists in reality. It is, like, <laughs> extremely just a fictionalized. And then, like, meanwhile, we we cast opposite him Vito, who could only be played by Oliver Reed, right? Because he's, like, such a strange pick for a leading man. If you're trying to do anything other than make your leading man this sort of, like, schlubby, hateable, like... Uh, literal personification of the Carsical state, right? Like, this is a movie largely about a guy who's a piece of shit learning that he's a piece of shit, right? <laughs> even even though, like, the audience understands that he's a piece of shit from minute one because he's played by Oliver Reed, right? So I guess that's just, that's sort of an interesting jumping off point for me. Um, Kelly, I don't know if that dovetails with your understanding of Polizio Teschi's, but to me, um, this movie took a little bit of adjustment in the first half, like Jason said, because I had to sort of recalibrate my thoughts where I, I like, I had to pretty early on figure out that like, oh, I'm watching like the 1970s equivalent of a sort of Quentin Tarantino movie. Kind of, you know what I mean? Where it's it's a lot more about being pulpy and being um, sensationalistic than it is about being uh, the sort of like high art that something like um, Confessions of a Police Captain at least comes closer to being. Does that make sense? Or what do you think? Yeah, um, it, in my mind, I kind of divide them into uh, a couple categories and kind of Giallo the same way, because a lot of times Giallo is uh, a police procedural is is a big part of it. That's, you know, really, you know, it's not just black gloves and stabbings. It's it's a, a mystery and an investigation. So I think of like, OK, here's the procedural that's a little like, you know, kind of spins things out a little bit slowly. You know, here's the mystery. We're trying to figure it out. And then there's the Politia Teskis that are like... Somebody is uh, driving a motorcycle through a wall in the first scene and gunning down a bunch of people and then, uh, you know, punching a woman and then going on a like actually unauthorized, unlicensed like car chase through Rome and smashing into real people who did not consent to be in the movie and things like that. So uh, some are really wild and bombastic and some are a little more, you know, kind of you know seem more arty now even though they they probably really weren't at the time i think mm. they're all kind of populist movies um that were sort of a you know a response to a, a time of unrest and you know political strangeness and violence um but yeah this one it kind of it kind of starts a little bit slow but then gets a little more exploitation movie you know there's some running around in the streets there's a mm -hmm. uh, you know ladies uh you know kind of taking their clothes off for not really a lot of reasons and things like that uh but it's maybe maybe in the middle ground sure yeah i mean that's that's really good context and it's i don't know it's helpful for me to know that we're all or i guess most of us here are trying to like find ways to 
relate to the genre or like make sense of it. Not that it doesn't make sense, but just like equate it to things, or at least I found myself equating it to a different sort of um, thing. And just because I've, I've been watching a lot of this type of movie recently, what really struck me, especially getting around to like the, the start of the second half, the, rapid changes in tone and scenery this tone that almost comes across as like playful um and the music that's going hard all the time um shout out to ennio morricone um and the the um antagonists or really just like the one that sort of like pop star guy with the really punchable face like finding antagonizing forces in sort of unlikely people or scenarios it kind of felt like a james bond movie to me and especially again as you're getting into the second half and you're just like moving and there are there are set pieces there are um there's drive-by carnage and um passers-by casualties um that's and again this is just this is me one of the aforementioned ignoramuses trying to to make sense of a genre that is very new to me um and i i the it definitely does feel like a movie with two halves the first half being the um or I guess I, I wasn't necessarily, um, stalled by the, or I, I wasn't hesitant at the, at the first half, kind of what that had to offer. I thought, um, the same sort of like, uh, hard boiled, uh, dialogue, like interrogation scenes that we had in our last, uh, you know, foray into this genre, like those are still there. I really gravitated toward those. The, the prison, the prison escape sequence where again, that music is just going full force. It's like a, what, what feels like a 10 minutes, probably like somewhere close to like five minute prison break sequence. Um, it was very, very in depth and very, uh, you, you see him every step of the way, but, um, like I, I really appreciated that. And then, just opening up into into the second half and getting into the sort of um, inevitabilities that we talked about already with this genre and that John talked about and is right above this genre. Um, and what if is, anything, that is, yeah, go ahead. You keep saying this genre. What is the name of the genre? Uh, Polizioteschi. Did I? Oh, okay, yeah. You're right. It, it feels weird that we haven't um, invoked that. It's uh, as, more often with us being 17 and a half minutes into this. Um, but yeah, if anything, the, the same sort of things I, I come up against, and it's just because of a personal sensibility thing, not that there's anything to do with the genre, but those sort of um, hopeless inevitabilities that we come up against, um, systemic injustices that are just seeing it with 2023 eyes. They're right there. We know they're coming. We have to sort of talk around them uh, uh, you know, um, uh, an appropriate amount before we can sort of watch them unfold. Um, and that's, that's where maybe I got a little impatient, but again, that's just me being, um, a, a nervous, maybe slightly less tired boy and a more like jittery, want to see stuff happen kind of boy. Um, those, those are my thoughts in, in a bottle. Um, Harry, how do those thoughts hit you? Yeah. I like that we've been talking about this as a movie with two halves. Um, I was even thinking like the pacing of this movie is so strange to me, not necessarily in a bad way, but it is like there is so much movie in this movie, right? Like I think that we have the broad strokes worked out, but like we never even mentioned the fact that the first scene involves um, Nico burying his best friend out in the middle of nowhere. It's a very emotional scene to start out with. There is the assassination of a very prominent oil magnet that ends up being the crux of the entire plot, but is, is very briefly mentioned. There is as um, Cody mentioned, mentioned the uh, pop star with the highly punchable face, Al Nico. All of these characters end up intersecting, but they are like, they're all like very disparate elements of this movie. This movie felt to me like it would have been a mini series, right? Like an HBO mini series or something had it come out in this day and age where like there's, um, 
there's just it feels very episodic and very sort of loose in the sense that like I I have a hard time remembering the entire second act of this movie because it feels like there are just so many exchanges of sort of like Nico is he on or Milo excuse me is he on uh, Vito's side is he betraying Vito like then they have that conversation where like Vito is going to kill him but he changes or uh um Milo is going to kill him, but he changes his mind. And then they become the odd couple that they were always sort of meant to be. It's a strange movie in that, like, it almost feels like a buddy cop movie that was transposed onto a Polizioteschi in that, like, to me, the Polizioteschi elements of this movie happened so late that I almost forgot they were going to happen, right? Like, I think this movie ends up from a script writing perspective sort of exactly where you think it's going to end up and where it should end up in genre. But it happens so close to the end of the movie. And so much of this movie is about something else that it was really interesting to me. It almost felt like the movie sort of remembered what it was like 10 minutes before the end of the movie. And until then it was doing something completely different. And honestly, like I think that it, it makes for a very strange watch in a lot of ways, but I kind of liked it a lot for that. It's almost like a, hmm. a movie who it, that's better at being what it isn't than it is at being what it is. If that makes any sense. Interesting. Uh, I, th- I think, like I said before, I think for me, Yes, the first half was impactful and effective, but only in context of the second, only in context of what that you said it ends up becoming. Like there are so many pieces to that plot between the singer and the oil magnate and uh, Jean Daniel uh, and like the whole criminal enterprise that's going to actually that's trying to leverage Vito's power to get Milo released. It's just like, again, I, I sort of I don't say that I turn my brain off during these movies, but it's just like I'm not going to be able to keep all these things straight and they're only going to reveal little tiny pieces at a time. I'll check back in with you plot, Mr. Plot, like at the end of the movie to see if it mattered at all, because like there are chances that it didn't really like in a material way matter that like the focus is going to be something else. The plot of, for example, confessions of a, of a police captain, like the elements of that plot, I will pay you $10 on Venmo right now, Cody or Harry, if you can remember the like details of that plot. And it's like, it didn't matter, but you remember exactly what you loved about it. You like, you loved trainee, you loved, Oh, I forget the main captain's name, Martin Balson's name, but you love that dynamic that relationship that sort of like way that they built those things and sort of the power structures that they were both fighting against in the same sense or like trying to figure out how they could best combat injustice like you remember the theme the thematic content you remember the character work you don't remember the plot and i think the first half of this movie for me was like all plot, all scene setting, all getting you ready with that whole James Bond vibe of we got to go get my friggin wife we got to get this prisoner out of prison and then in the second half, pulling us back to actually what you weren't considering is that these two people, these dialectic opposites are really not that dissimilar. They're finding pieces of each other in each other. And then it's like, okay, we've, so we've boom, reached a down point when he, when he's not able to get to, um, to Anna in time. Uh, and like the bad guys try to uh, fuck him off and, and, and like take Milo anyway. Yeah. I don't know. It's just coming to me. And then, in that moment, we have sort of that stopping of the engines and starting again with, so these two characters, right? Remember these two guys that you've been watching for the past hour? Well, actually, we're going to give them a little bit of genuine screen time, not just banter. We're going to give them like a little bit of room to find themselves in each other, like bringing them up to such high stakes and then having Milo, uh, I'm just riffing here, but Milo, the scene where Milo is tasked with killing Vito and can't do it in the field is like really 
pivotal, obviously, for the plot, because then it means that the whole plot can continue and they can continue the search for Anna, figure out who's trying to leverage Milo. But it's also like really meaningful for their characters because it then changes the dynamic completely that they're now both of the same goal. And I just think up to that point, so much of it felt, I don't, because it's weird to speak of it as if like, I'm still fell asleep in the middle, Jason, but it felt like, God, I'm really not going to like going back to this movie. And I, and I really disliked the idea of starting the movie over, but I did. I'm glad I did because it really brought it home. I think in the second half, um, Kelly, I'm not sure if that shook any thoughts free, but you've had your hand up for a long time and I feel bad keeping it up there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm so glad, you know, you guys have both mentioned these things. I think of this movie as sort of like the plot is like circling around until it really hits that last, I don't know, maybe 25 minutes where it's like, boom, guess what? This is the point of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) And there's all these like little breadcrumbs when you look back where it's like, yes, okay. Um, I mean, kind of like the whole thing, I can kind of see the themes that usually come out in these like years of lead movies where it's like, okay, there's kidnappings, there's political assassinations, there's conspiracies, there's organized crime, there's the police and the kind of like state sanctioned authorities acting like organized crime. Uh, So that's all there. But all the different pieces don't really come together until, uh, you know, to me, it's kind of like maybe either the part where Oliver Reed finds, uh, I guess we're getting into spoiler territory. We're probably going to start talking about ending type things. Uh, so be aware. Uh, where he, where he finds his wife, you know, overdosed by, you know, the big heavies, the organized crime guys. And, you know, oh, well, we can make it look like you did this or that or this happened. And then he turns to the police thinking they will help me and give me advice. And they do give him some advice, but it's uh, maybe maybe not that helpful for him. Uh, and he ends up doing some things that he doesn't want to do. So uh, I think that kind of sets some real things in motion. And also that, that scene where Milo's could shoot him. And then he's like, nah, let's work together. That's a big one too. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot more to say about the ending, but let's, uh, I think there's some other things to say before then. Yeah. I'm really glad that y- you both brought that up. Um, I think I agree with you largely, Jason, in that this is sort of my frustration with the movie is that, I, there's so much movie before the movie becomes what it actually is. Um, and in some ways that are good and in some ways that are bad and in some ways that are just sort of baffling and frustrating. That's why I said it's kind of like a miniseries. Like, I think it's good that we get as much characterization of Vito and Milo as we do. It's just that it happens like separately in ways that don't really complement what the movie is really about. Um, yeah. And like, it does make it though. And so like, I, I can't, I don't know if this was deliberate. It doesn't really matter, I suppose. And I don't think it's as effective as it would have been to um, put them together earlier in the movie, which is pretty clearly what the movie should have done in my mind is just sort of like, you know, like the first act should have been bringing these guys together. They should have been buddy cops by like minute 20, you know, of this movie. Instead, they are on the same page, like literally two hours into this movie or something, right? Like not quite that long, but you know what I mean? Um, But it does sort of lend this very strange pacing to the movie that makes it um, feel, at least to me, it like sort of supports this very strange queer reading that I have where like these characters are so set in their ways, right? Particularly Vito. He is like the ultimate sort of like 
oh no, the criminal class is like a, a separate subhuman race of people, right? Like criminals don't deserve to have rights and they can't change and they can't be anything other than what they are because that's who they are, right? So like you, like Milo, you are not like a person. You are a person who deserves to be in prison. I'm a prison warden. This is what my life and career has been all about. Um, then he he changes so rapidly and so completely into becoming sort of like like the this weird friend with um Milo and meanwhile Milo comes to like love him so much so quickly that the departure back to this sort of like normative identity of his as this sort of cop policeman who ends up doing what he does at the end of this movie it felt strange to me but in a sort of like deliberate way you know what i mean where it's almost like like he gets this taste of this sort of like non-normative lifestyle, right? Which like you could make the point that that the um, homoeroticism between he and his co-lead is intentional in that way. In my mind, it's sort of symbolic of this larger idea, right? Of him breaking out of binaries generally, right? He realizes, oh, he's not just the police captain turned warden. He is actually a person. He is actually someone who like is interested in larger systemic injustices and in understanding the ways in which he's been wrong. And then he is made to be so afraid of that side of himself that he rejects it wholly doing what he does, right? So this is really a movie about a man sort of like seeing the truth and then hiding from it with force and brutality, you know, and, and, um, Milo ends up being the sort of like, uh, victim of that. It kind of like it, this is a weird comparison, but it kind of reminded me a little bit of, of clockwork orange where it sort of like sets up this, this binary between sort of like, uh, state violence and the violence of sort of an individual. And then making the case that like, Oh, actually like this state violence is so much more terrible than anything that could be (laughs) like, individualized right um so there's there's a really weird and interesting um reading that i have of this movie about sort of um Vito's character and character arc that is sort of like weirdly both supported by and undermined by the plot of the movie we see as it plays out which is why i think that this is such a strange beguiling movie in so many ways right what do you think about any of that well, I was just going to say, like, when you brought up uh, Vito and Milo's sort of like their, how they have changed each other, that, they, excuse me, changed each other, that was going to be my next, like, pivot because I really do want to talk about that. I really do like where they get with that whole character right. interplay. Right. And you brought like it I'm up saying, earlier, I think, right? Where I, I think you said a, that. Honestly, I think it's a crux of the movie. I think it's like really what got me interested, what like put gas back in the tank for me. I don't mean to, to like generalize as like the first half is boring or whatever. The fir- first half just does not feel special in many ways until that second half starts to kick in. So I just wanted to sort of steer the conversation at where it was already naturally going toward. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Vito, Milo, sort of where they are when we meet them, um, wh- how they change each other. Who's changed more? I think clearly, like Harry, you were saying, Vito is the one who like actually goes and undergoes more character change um and it's like not an equal exchange it's not like a central point of view that they both come to right um i well, think it's just a really interesting when he uh, defaults back to who he was it's so frustrating and it seems out yeah. of character right but i think yeah. that's kind of part of the point i i would i would think so too and because i think that's where they hearken back to the beginning of the movie with like it makes the beginning of the movie ring a little bit different but i was hoping that that sort of shook some uh, fruits free from cody's tree do you have any thoughts about Vito and milo etc 
what are you doing i in my tree for you sneaky dog um yeah i mean the the more we we talk about this and i don't know if it's just like needing more reps with this with this um particular genre which if my notes are correct that is the uh polizioteschi uh genre do i have that right jason ah mamma mia um and like seeing i like seeing more movies along uh along this line to to get a, a a better sense of like i don't know like two movies does not a sample size make but the fact that we are talking about how this movie feels like a completely different most of this movie feels like a completely different movie from what this movie actually becomes and i i think ultimately i'm coming around to what you were talking about jason but the 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 I don't know, maybe the idea, maybe how I or anybody else, um, especially those watching this with 2023 eyes, you know, viewing this out of North America, um, maybe, maybe part of the idea is to, you know, let, let these characters be characters, let them undergo their, like, whatever that story may be within this particular framework. There's a framework in place. There's an inevitable endpoint that we're going to hit where, the chickens are going to come home to roost, whatever, like whatever that might mean. But there's, there's some sort of, um, oversight. There's, um, probably a government official in there somewhere. Somebody's probably crooked. There are probably some, some creepy villains, um, some big baddies <laughs> that, yeah, um, uh, in any case, I've got James Bond on the brain, uh, as you can, as you can imagine. But, you know, investing ourselves in these characters, investing ourselves in these arcs, investing ourselves in like what, what these people can give each other, um, the common ground that they find find up until that point where it's the, the same sort of endpoint of like okay, like okay how how are these how are these new arcs how are these characters going to react now that there's this last 20 or so minutes that's going to be devoted to this same sort of thing that this genre is going to keep hitting us over the head with and it's probably going to be pretty unfortunate that's kind of the idea um but like it, coupling that investment in these people with the sort of not necessarily the reward but the sort of um trying to look for the right word because it, like it's not going to feel good but it's going to feel perhaps you know that frust- that frustration that we're talking about where he um pivots back to where where Vito pivots back to his sort of original characterization it's it's frustrating but like that doesn't mean this is a bad movie again that's like very much the the idea so i like i i don't know um th- that's that's something that i'm that i'm kind of wrestling with right now is like maybe maybe it's okay that those things feel so separate um and maybe that's I don't know, maybe it's just like a recalibration of, of my brain that I need to kind of uh, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy these arcs, enjoy this, this bromance. They should have made out, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that we, 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 we go to see these beautiful fucking mountains, none of which will, will be in my, um, my GIF picks for, for a later segment in this episode, but like this beautiful scenery, knowing that there is an inevitable, sad, bleak, uh, end point for us just waiting there. Um, and like, maybe I need to be more cognizant about that when I'm, when I'm watching. Um, all that is to say, I like this movie <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. And I really like this genre. Um, yeah, that's, and that's, that's what shook loose from my tree, Jason. That's pick them up and eat them. I think thinking about who influences who is a really interesting way to think about it and kind of spark some new thoughts for me, I guess. So, you know, obviously we have a lot of push and pull with Vito and Milo. Um, and then kind of right at the end, there's um, Milo kind of getting some new thoughts from Carlotta when they start hooking up the 
the smuggler that takes them through the Alps, which is such a strange, like, tangent for what them a to diversion. go on. Like, yeah. like, oh, suddenly they're yeah, running through snowy mountains. Really um, nice views, and, though. You know, gorgeous, yeah. And, you know, Carlotta's, like, also somebody who lives outside the law, but she seems to sort of be, like, represented in kind of a righteous way. Like, she's, you know, helping people that can't cross borders for whatever reason. Everybody seems like kind of a cool, you know, young artist or something uh that they're hanging out with um so she you know she kind of starts you know get getting uh milo to think more politically and you know that gives him the idea of like stepping outside this like cop criminal you know corruption conspiracy type thing and being like oh what if we go to the media the newspapers could blow this wide open uh it goes all the way to the top and the people have to know uh and he just gets a little bit of a chance to kind of share that with Vito. but by then Vito has been kind of gotten to by you know first the police and then the police send him to a lawyer who uh i had to write down the quote that the lawyer says it's such an interesting like blocked uh way that the characters are looking at each other and appearing to each other the lawyer is like kind of behind things the whole time he's the the guy in the like kind of greenhouse area but he's mm-hmm. hidden by plants he's hidden by a post he's sitting down um but you know he starts he starts giving the same advice that the police force did which is basically uh you need to take this into your own hands and you need to see this through and he says society has many ways of defending itself red tape prison bars and the revolver which is pretty intense <gasps> also there's no revolvers in this movie <laughs> there's literally Ooh, no revolvers good uh, good point pistols. it's all like walter pbks <laughs> like, or whatever it, they're like weird fake looking italian pistols like i had to i asked kelly if like is that even a real gun because it's got like that little like like silencer looking thing on it that yeah, makes it look like a space weapon or something yeah it's very weird yeah, very strange. But uh, so it's like, you know, by then, you know, he's kind of, uh, you know, sidestepped, you know, he's talking to all the, all the corrupt police and things like that. And they're all kind of like, hmm, you don't know this, but it would help uh, our cause to, you know, complete this cover up if, uh, if you just kind of did the same thing that the organized crime wants you to do, you know, that would solve all our, all our problems and sends him on his way. And then the, the two characters reconnect after they've both been influenced by other people. Yeah, well, I mean, the the great tragic sort of sweeping irony of this movie, right, is that by by the end of the movie, um, Milo has adopted the sort of like restored sense of justice that um, Vito ostensibly had at the beginning of the movie, right? Where like Vito was a guy who was supposed to believe in something, law and order, etc. Whereas um, traditionally, Milo would be our sort of opportunist nihilist who's just sort of in it for himself. Um, at the end of the movie, Milo has decided, like, I am going to fight this. Like, I have decided that the rest of my life is going to be about pursuing justice, even if it won't work. Whereas it turns out that that Vito obviously in order to win back the life that he had before his quiet life with his wife, his, his job within the system ends up, you know, I'll, I'll spoil it, I guess, murdering Milo. Right. Uh, and, and rejecting this change, uh, in order to return to that. Um, I think that more and more as we've been talking about it, especially Cody, as you brought up the way that like the genre trappings of this movie, like loom large over it throughout the runtime. I, and again, like I don't have the, the sort of like 
media context to understand if this is true, but like the more it feels like this is a movie that is wielding its genre sort of against you and becomes this sort of like almost subversive look, right? Where it's about reframing what Vito is as this sort of like symbolic taken protagonist at the beginning of the movie, which they already do a really good job of deconstructing simply by casting Oliver Reed, right? Like Oliver Reed is so much less traditionally, like if anything, um, Fabio Testi as Milo should be the main character because he's handsome, right? He's like traditionally good looking in a way that is shocking to see in a 1970s Italian movie where the rest of these dudes do not look like that. And so instead of this like noble crusader uh, who believes in law and order, we get this guy who is desperate to sort of return to the status quo, right? And by sort of like putting him in this unlikely relationship with Milo, we create this training where the the people watching this movie can come to understand who he is or who he really always was, right? So it's sort of like it wields and reframes the cynicism that we would have for the police state by putting it back in the eyes of the protagonist or by having us understand the protagonist differently. And so when his betrayal of Milo happens, it's so brutal because it does feel inevitable within the trappings of the genre, right? But it feels anything but inevitable in this movie right to the point where like when when Vito is almost pleading with Milo like it won't work it won't like it won't work for you to go to the newspapers these people are un- unbeatable that feels like a really shitty excuse right because for one thing like the the criminals throughout this movie have been portrayed as imminently fallible right like very very differently from the rest of the the movie like these guys are they're not amateurs certainly but like they're not great at this right their their conspiracy is not foolproof in fact it's pretty much cracked like by the end of the movie we know what they did we know why they did it we know who they were trying to pin it on and why and like we have all of the the clues so to speak that we need to bring them down it's just that bringing them down would almost be too much effort for veto it would it would force him to sort of like understand himself in this different context, right? He would have to give up these things that he has, right? He would have to give up his traditional understanding of right and wrong. He would have to give up this idea of himself as this straight-laced, straight being the operative word there, cop <laughs> with a wife. And well, but but seriously, right? It's like yeah, no. at the by the end of this movie, he is like very much like, oh, I either have to admit that I have like gay feelings for this guy and that my life is a very different thing or I can shoot this guy, put him away, and reunite with my life. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's silly. I, I feel like I bring this up too much, but like, it reminds me of Giovanni's Room, right? <laughs> the, the James Baldwin novel, where it's just like, this guy can like be totally gay with this person until there are consequences of that queerness, and then he can disappear back into the traditional and just leave the more openly queer person out to dry, right? It's mm. sort of similar to that, except that instead of explicit queerness here, it's about... Uh, sort of like quote unquote criminality and quote unquote mm-hmm. non traditional lifestyles, but the yeah. same thing happens here, right? Where like in the end, it it turns out that it's not the the undefeatable sort of like powers of the powers that be that bring down Vito. It's his own fear of change. It's his yes. own fear of having to confront these ideas he has about himself, and yeah. he the way that we do sort of like hides behind the idea that these powers that be are undefeatable in order to not have to confront that. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something really powerful about that. 
Well, it's just like in that moment of him, like in that space is where they, like, I think the movie's strength is that it is like a questioning, uh, a, like a, we use the term deconstruction way too much on this podcast, but a deconstruction of, I guess, both of those characters of, of Vito more, excuse me, of Vito more than of, uh, of Milo. But I, I, again, I, I see it as an unequal exchange, but of Vito more than Milo it, where, but like on, on both sides, just not equally like Vito is like, he sees himself as he's the protector. He's the straight man. He's the man's man. He's the upholder of the law. And he can't be that in this situation because he's, you know, his friggin' wife's gone and he's not able to get her back. And he's, and they're, you know, and like, he just feels a little bit powerless. He feels like he doesn't have the foothold that he needs, uh, to like, to, to enact justice, I guess, to, to uphold that lifestyle, that image of himself, like you were talking about Harry. And, uh, so he like is more susceptible to more, more, uh, what's the term I'm thinking of more malleable, maybe to that like criminal lifestyle that Milo is part of that he, that he brings and sort of like embodies, uh, then Milo on the other hand is like, he sees himself as a criminal. He like sort of sees the social divide between himself and Vito, uh, and like, but in that, like, he can't be that because the other criminals are, have like somebody else who's even worse than him has turned on him and wants to like put a cap in his bony Veronan ass. Like he, they want to, he can't be like what he, his own construct of himself has been. He can't be the, the criminal, even if he, I don't know exactly if we dig, dig into how, how highly he thinks of himself, but like the moves with some impunity, I guess. Um, so then he's uh, a little bit more susceptible to, and f- maybe malleable to Vito's like uh, longer dedication. And like Kelly brought up Carlotta's whole, uh, like that mildly socialist honey dripping in his ear type moment that she has, where she's like, you got to go. Oh man, press. I love Things that shit. It rocked. But like, I think it's in that space that the characters change the most, that they develop this openness to one another. And I think that is what really drives a lot of that dramatic tension, uh, especially toward the end, because like you're saying, Vito stretches until just until you think he's going to snap until you think he's going to like fully bring the whole thing down and he's going to be with me and he's going to do the whole thing. But then he straps, uh, not straps back, but snaps back to, you know, if we wanted to read it with 2023 lens, he snaps back to literal heteronormativity by saving his wife and and defending her uh, by shooting Milo and uh, betraying him. And at the very, very end, uh, when he claims to not know who I think it's Grappa, maybe the character's name is. One of the guys from the shadowy syndicate who's uh, like in bed with the police and the local government and everything. Again, the plot, the plot um, just sort of goes by me. But it's in that moment that like you you realize, oh, all that stuff that happened in the preceding 45 minutes of the movie and everything that happened an hour before that was really tanked by this person's adherence and fear of the change that Milo represented in his life uh, away from heteronormativity, heteronormativity away from like a law and order lifestyle back in the blue kind of thing. What he'd been taught. Exactly. You know, he just, he, he finds himself pulled straight back and it's like, how strong was his dedication? It was, was his motivation to uh, like, accept that, that change in his life. If he was willing to discard it right at the very end, you know? Um, but that's Polizio Tetsky for you. Yeah. Well, there's there's this really great, terrible irony of performance throughout this movie, right? And the more I think about it, the more I think that like that might make the first act 
worthwhile for me because I, I wonder if we're like we need the sort of more traditional cop procedural of sort of like Vito like undergoing this search for his wife and in the no holds barred sort of like brutality with which he pursues that right where like he has a narrative about who he is and why he is the way he is right and the movie is sort of like presenting why he holds that narrative right this idea that like well I have to see like criminals as subhuman because look at what they've done. Look at what they've done to me. Look at what they've done to my wife. I've spent my career fighting these savages, right? And they they keep um, taking more and more from me. So I have to become like, I have to become even worse than they are or just as brutal as they are. Whereas like, I think that um, on the other hand, Milo is seen as false, right? His sort of like smiling persona, his happy-go-lucky demeanor. It's supposed to be this sort of facade for a cold-blooded criminal who actually only cares about himself, right? But by the end of the movie, the irony is that Milo's his personality is much closer to who he actually is, right? Like he is a person who loves being alive, who wants to see the right thing happen to the right people. Whereas... Uh, and so, like, I think that his coming forward and being like, yes, like, now we have this opportunity to do the right thing, right? To step into these roles that we're supposed to have, right? To be the whistleblower. Uh, whereas finally, like, like Vito will have to be like, oh, like, now I have to confront, like, why was I the way that I was throughout my life? Was it really because I cared about justice and I wanted to do the right thing? Or was it because I like this hatred that I had of other people and this need that I had to enforce and dominate and suppress was actually coming from somewhere else, right? It was actually coming from a deep self-denial or a deep sort of like rejection of the truth in favor of these comforting lies that I've been told my whole life about what it means to be a good person. And he makes his choice, right? He kills the literal symbol of all of those things so mm -hmm. that he can go back to living a life with his wife that allows him to remain in these illusions. Um, and, and I think that like, I think that maybe without the beginning where we see the manifestation of both of the sort of illusions that these guys live under, um, that wouldn't be quite as impactful. I was thinking of it a lot in terms of integrity and, you know, who has sort of like the societal idea of integrity and who maybe has real right. integrity. Right. Like, you know, Milo is loyal to his friends. Uh, you know, obviously it's maybe not even that realistic of a character. I mean, he's almost naive at times, but you know, he is friendly. He's easygoing. Um, he cares about people and he cares about not like uh, the law justice, but, you know, he cares about just things happening. Um, and he cares about the fact that his friend, you know, died and had things pinned on him. Uh, he, he doesn't like to be a patsy. Uh, you know, he wants to like let the people know. Whereas, yeah, you know, Vito is like... Yeah, a former police uh, homicide investigator, prison warden. And yet, you know, he immediately is like, well, wife got kidnapped, got to bust this prisoner loose. And it, the second that people start getting to him, uh, you know, then he, he turns to. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think the movie really uh, is trying to make points, uh, especially at the end of, you know, is one life worth more than another is, you know, they, they say it, I think a couple times, you know, is 
some common criminal, some petty criminal, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is, is his life worth the same as your upstanding citizen wife? Oh, life? It's like, so you know. good. They try to convince him <laughs> that the capitalist like system is worth saving over this newfound yeah. comrade he has essentially. I, I, that's so depressing. Exactly. And it works. Yeah. And you know, I, I think the movie, you know, has a sense of like, okay, that's, that's not the case. Um, but you know, Vito, Vito is swayed, unfortunately. Well, and, and the movie does such a good job of both like stripping that rhetoric bare and sort of like making the case for why it's so persuasive for people. Right. Which is that, um, like you're, you're right. Right. Like fundamentally the rhetoric that, that first the police captain and then the judge try to use on veto is like it's not just like hey think about what you'll have to lose it's also like you're not really losing anything by killing milo because he's just a criminal right they like appeal to his sensibilities from the first act where he's like yeah this is just some scumbag like who gives a shit if he dies like that's just a he's not a person he's not somebody like with real like interiority you can you can just brush him away and then it's like undergirding that is also this idea that like and also like hey like Everything that you have is built on this idea that this guy isn't anything. So you can either reject this like and and understand that his life does have value and then you have to go back to square one and everything you know about yourself and about the world is a lie or you can just sort of like brush him under the carpet or under the rug and go back to your life and your traditional values and the things that you have and like maybe just try not to think about it too much. Right. And it's sort of like in the sort of grand sweeping Polizioteschi way, it sort of implies to me like a larger, more universal parable. Um, Oh, thank you. Um, For sort of like, I don't know. I think it really does an effective job of reframing why the people in positions of power stay in and want those positions of power, right? It's not because they believe in the things that they espouse. It's because having those positions and continuing to dominate and suppress the people beneath them allows them to stay in this suspended animation where they don't have to reconcile with themselves, where they don't have to reconcile with what they've done, with who they are. They are allowed through their privilege to remain asleep to their own sins and crimes, right? And so, like, I think that that's a pretty fucking, like, legitimate take on cops (laughs) and on, like, people in positions of power is this idea that, like, hey, if we ever were to stop and like think about ourselves we would figure out that we're like tremendous pieces of shit and so like it's much much easier to keep doubling down and thinking like hey actually donald trump might be right because if i don't think that then what does that mean about who i am right there's this sort of like great like um sunken cost fallacy that this movie really makes apparent in a way that i find very persuasive and then there's that beautiful bleak nihilistic last scene where uh he really Vito really loses everything uh participating in this conspiracy because the second that his wife sees him saying i don't know who that is i've never seen him before she recoils in horror you know she pulls her hand away and starts backing away with you know a look of fright or disgust and you know he's just like sweating you know through the the sheer like force of you know being 
so compelled to participate in this, you know, strange, dark thing uh, that, I mean, he's, he lost what he was trying to get the entire time. Right. Um, yeah. And like, it's so important that she has to understand that like, oh, like this man who I thought I was in love with was never the man I thought I was in love with. He was always this other thing. This thing that like now I can see for the first time because of this experience. Also, it's so funny that like it's it's really like uh, brought home by the fact that she is like this beautiful 19 year old Italian woman uh, and he's Oliver Reed. <laughs> it's very so funny. It's like he's, he's like a fucking Frankenstein's monster next to this woman. Some, some people think Oliver Reed is kind of hot. Uh, you know, subtweeting some people. Um, I think I think I know at least one some people. It's it's been a thing. It's been a thing. With people. I don't know. The the scar kind of gives him a charm. Apparently he got it in a I, gigantic bar fight after downing like thirteen gallons of beer, whatever the fuck people say about that yeah, guy. He's, really? he's like a he's like a human bulldog. And there's there's a sort of he appeal really to that. Is. He actually was uh, arrested once for locking his jaw into somebody's thigh and following them down the street. Uh, that's that's how much of a bulldog he is. Literal bulldog. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the end, very ending, Kelly, because it is a great segue into the final final segment of our show in which we talk about memorable images from this movie and what sort of stands out as things that could work as gifts that go out with this episode on Twitter. Uh, that's right. It's time for Good Grief, Give Me a GIF. I don't have a sound effect or thought for it or a song for it yet. We'll, we'll come up with something. Um, but I do want right now the folks on this call to uh, give me what your suggestions are for, I mean, you've seen these episodes, you recognize we make a lot of these gifts and we want to make sure that something uh, representative of the discussion, not just the movie goes out. Uh, so what Kelly came to your mind while you were watching this movie, um, timestamps are helpful, but not required. What just stuck out as something that could look great alongside that tweet? Well, it's close to the start, so hopefully it'll be easy to find. But I mean, I think one of the most striking images is when Oliver Reed comes home and he's walking down the hallway and Anna puts her little feet on top of his feet and then they're yes. walking together down the hallway. Maybe it's kind of basic because I was like, this is probably going to be everybody's, right? No, I love that. I thought that one was pretty great. Well, and like the, the clothes keep falling off one by one. That's such a great shot. It's just like one shot and it's on their feet the whole time and their clothes are just slowly. That's like a real Bond shot, Cody. <laughs> that reminded me a lot of a Bond True. movie. Very oh, much. Yeah. Uh, Cody, while you got your mic on, what were you thinking for Giffy oh, yeah. Wiffies? Sure. Um, that was admittedly one of the, yeah, that was Kelly's was one that stuck out to me as well. Uh, the other one I'll, I'll shout out. Um, I can't remember if it happens later on in the movie as well, but the, um, the cigarette drops that happen, um, with the first one I think happens at nine, uh, 1915. Um, Milo drops it and it like, like falls upright. And then there's another one. Maybe this is the, the more appropriate one where he does it again at around the 28 minute mark. And then there's a guard that knocks it over. Cause he sees it standing upright, which, and like, especially after the movie was done, I was like, yo, um, but those, yeah, no, those look, those look pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean that one, I think the, the Vito and, and Anna walking in that, uh, yeah, it was around like 11 minutes out of the movie. That's so, yeah, I don't know, like striking. I don't know how much it has to do or, or, uh, or say about the rest of the movie other than the fact that, uh, our, our guy's a, a wife guy. Hey, you're of the wife guy. Hey, um, you're maybe the wife not, guy. A, maybe not after the conclusion of the movie, but from the book of the, the, <laughs> she the turned previous around run to the courthouse to divorce that yeah. man. Yeah. Which, you know what? Fair. Um, but yeah, those are the, those are the ones that really stood out to me most. Nice. Then Harry, we're down to you. What are, what's yeah. your giffy wiffy? 
Uh, well, to mention what Kelly just said in the comments, I would love any that uh, features, um, in particular, Milo's incredible like white-ass fur coat that he wears throughout this movie. It's the most ridiculous coat I've ever seen. It's so good. My man is dripping. They're the Coat uh, Brothers. They're the Coat Brothers, exactly. <laughs> um, I only could think of one. It's right when uh, Milo is escaping from prison. It's maybe the most Italian thing I've ever seen, where he pokes his adorable little head out of like a door, like a window frame, and he looks up and he sees the full moon shining down on him, and it just cuts back to him, and he just he blows a kiss right at that big Bella Luna <laughs> to like celebrate his freedom. And I was just like, oh man, what a fucking lovable rascal this guy is. You gotta love it. So perfectly uh, Italian. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what it is but it's right when he escapes from prison i do remember that shot too uh it was not on my list but i gotta say the uh walking on the feet that's absolutely one i think that's already going to be maybe we have consensus around that already because it was just such a solid shot and it makes me think i took a note but didn't pull it up until now about how many shots or how many of these like how many pivotal shots kind of start on the feet of this movie in like the beginning of the movie obviously i don't know if it was any clearer on you guys's pink print but uh it's like just running feet it's uh jean jean daniel and milo running together it uh and then there's uh of course um anna and uh, Vito walking and she's removing her clothes and it's like only from the knees down and then there's even one near the end i think it's just before he ends up in it must be like the police commissioner's room or something where he's looking for advice uh from the police on what to do about milo and they say like it's actually probably better if you turn him in like go ahead and do this don't let your conscience win kind of thing but that shot too like starts excuse me that scene starts on a really long shot of just like vetoes from his like shins down and whoever escorted him to that room from his shins down and i wondered if that had any like substantive meaning or if it was like sort of a just a theme that they wanted to bring us from like just rising that's the blood from, on the streets that's the blood <laughs> on the streets uh would did you notice that kelly well i was gonna say that reminds my other kind of top image that i think of with the movie is from the end where uh well first of all i love that guy with the funky glasses <laughs> the police uh, in- investigator yeah, yeah. he seems like a real bond villain Ed Harris. Uh, but you know when he's kind of like do you know this man have you ever yeah. seen him <laughs> and uh you know he puts out his hand to shake oliver reed's hand and it you know it just shows oliver reed's hand you know clenched in a fist uh, and then slowly you see Anna's hands slide down over. Oh it yeah, that's a fucking legendary shot. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so it's like this this kind of like the just the super close ups on just the, the body parts, but that are kind of like still telling the story is really interesting. Yeah. Good point because that again in the very first couple of shots you get that very hurried, uh, like panicked breathing, and you see the close ups of Jean Jean Daniel and Milo. And then you see Jean Daniel's shot and it's like really tied up on his cross or not cross. It's an Ankh necklace, right? The, uh, I, th- I think it's an Ankh from um, Egyptian mythology, but yeah, just fucking some sick oh, yeah. shots in this. Like, again, nothing that like grabbed me, grabbed me the first time through watching it. Well, I'm watching half of it, but then on rewatch, it was like, man, this do be hitting like Cody, like Cody noted. Um, there's also one, I mean, we, we brought up a lot of the queer readings in this movie. There's just one shot that I just want to shout out um, at the, it's just about that midway point where Milo is tasked with killing Vito and they share this just incredible, like this smoldering look from across the yard. And it's like really tight on their faces and v- Milo doesn't look super comfortable and Vito just looks like he's about to fuck the guy. Just incredibly 
incredibly good eye acting in that scene. And I was blown away by how immediately sexual that movie was. And again, not to read intent into a 50 year old Italian movie, but that really was quite intense. That's one thing uh, that I got to read. Put- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I. <laughs> you might be saying something similar, but uh, I got to put a plug out for uh, the Ken Russell movie "Women in Love," which I think is a little bit infamous for uh, like several minute long nude wrestling match in front of a fire between Oliver Reed and Alan Bates. Whoa! Uh, it's, I, no. I can't. I don't even remember the context, but it's it's intense. Kelly, I gotta no say, I, I was not about to say something at all similar to that. <laughs> I was not about to shout out minute-long naked wrestling scenes. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I can see why you would think that. I was just going to say, um, there are some really good shots in the beginning, too, uh, where Milo is, like, burying John Danielle in, in, like, very sexual terms, right? Like, I think that um, I almost forgot to bring it up, but, like, the first time we see Milo in the first scene of this movie, he is, like, very, very queer-coded, right? Like, it is very much like John Danielle is, like, his dying partner, like they he's like holding him he they embrace each other he kisses the body of john danielle before he, he like kisses him on the lips on the lips yeah, yeah. as he's burying him yeah. it's like fucking boromir and aragorn levels of gay Oy. um which you love to see also uh did you think about the mountain goats at all jason when yes you were watching as, this because movie? everybody because- like the i don't was was you guys's um english dubbed uh yeah and so yeah. It, it really sounded like they were saying john, john danielle, danielle. Yeah. Like all the time, and I was like, "Holy shit!" They <laughs> killed fucking the mountain goats. <laughs> that uh, that's what they did, and uh, he never went on to make music or anything. Uh, I'm a little bit tapped for actual critical consensus, as you can see. Just be glad that I'm not just playing the funiculi funicula on loop at this point. Um, that I think will do us for uh, for good grief. Give me a gift. Thank you so much, everybody. I'll start making those. I was able to find one version of this movie that I could actually download online. It's a YouTube rip. And it's all whopper jawed in terms of the aspect ratio. So you'll see what comes out on Twitter. Uh, but for right now, we have one final segment left to the show. Uh, if we can count on on our good friend Cody, uh, and if I can count on my good friend Harry to help us introduce it. Oh, yes, and our guest. If you do, you remember how it goes? If she's so inclined, would you like to join us for this final segment, which we like Just to try call... to stop me? <laughs> <laughs> Cody's Cody's noties. Wow. Thank you so much for that inglorious introduction. I should have oh. I should have changed it to Whopper Jod. I don't know what the fuck that is, but it's no? pretty cool. You're gonna hear it a lot um, more from now on, big guy. That's me when I go to BK, big guy. <laughs> oh nice. Oh god. I was gonna say Whopper Jod. I don't know if that was Italian lingo. Cue that. Mmm. Bibbity bobbity Here we go. This week, we're bringing back a familiar segment through something I like to call Revolverage Sale, um, sung to the tune of, if you remember, Kagarage Sale. It's been a while, um, but hey, we've got some great news. The, the lot of you here, and heck, the lot of you who may be listening to this as well, you have trekked through Snowmageddon, February 2023, and you've found salvation through a, a glimmering garage light, just barely visible within the unrelenting snow flurries. Uh, I'm setting the stage. It's called good writing. As you get closer, you can see that within this uh, this particular garage is a sale that's going on. We're in exclusively films that were produced partially or fully in Italy uh, are being sold. And we're talking the highest definition physical media known to mankind. Like it doesn't get any better than this. Uh, the, there's a kindly older lady overseeing the sale and she's so glad to have company 
during uh, this horrific blizzard that she offers each of you nine dollars in the currency known as dollarinos it's a very fake currency they're called dollarinos to use for the purposes of this sale um and she says to each of you that all nine dollarinos need to be used only on her collection of movies and that none of the dollarinos can be used on one dollar beers this is a a a clause for aaron grossman but he's not here so i'm going to say it anyway um one dollar beers are are off the table if you spend any of her dollarinos on one dollar beers you'll get your head chopped off and your corpse will dye the snow outside a a deep, sad red color. Uh, So what I've done is I've arranged selected works of cinema that were produced in Italy in descending order of letterboxed popularity, and I've assigned dollarino values. Uh, And so starting with five dollarinos for the most popular works, four dollarinos the next year down, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm going to list them off. However, for those of us who are are visually inclined, I've linked a handy little infographic in the recording chat if you want to go ahead and pull that up uh, and follow along as I go, uh, for those of you on the call anyway. God, you're the the best in the biz, Cody. You made fucking infographics for this. Uh, Shout out to Microsoft Paint uh, for winning me my primetime Emmy this year or whatever the equivalent is for podcasting. Ultimately, what we want to know is what you'd spend your $9 Renos on. Perhaps you already own some of these movies in real life. For our purposes here, pretend that you don't. Uh, but without further ado, here are the price categories that we're working with. Um, if I remember, I'll, I'll try to re- recall to, to tweet this infographic as well so that folks at home can play along um, more easily. But for at the $5 Reno tier, we've got Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name from the year 2017. We've got Dario Argento's Suspiria from 1977. We've got Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly from 1966. It's the $5 Reno tier. The $4 Reno tier, uh, we've got Scorsese's Gangs of New York, Fellini's 8.5, um, should say Gangs of New York 2002, Fellini's 8.5 from the year 1963, uh, and Anya's Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7 from the year of our Lord 1962. Going down to the $3 Reno tier, we've got Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai from 1967. We've got the film Murder Mystery, directed by famed auteur Kyle Nuichek from the year of our Lord 2019. Uh, that movie stars Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston. Um, I don't know why that one's at the sale, but it fits the bill. So... um who am I to question this kindly older lady giving out fake currency? And we've also got 2046, the Wong Kar Wai film from 2004, rounding out the $3 Reno tier. Um, one perk of me listing all these out is it gives you three folks uh, enough time to, to think about your, your purchase. So this is good. The $2 Reno tier, um, is it Rogue, Reg, Nicholas, Rogue? I'm going to go with Rogue because Rogue sounds, um, steamier uh don't look now from 1973 uh we've got jacques tati's playtime from 1967 and then abbas kurostami's certified copy from the year 2010 it's the two dollar reno tier and finally last but not necessarily least uh, i guess we'll find out the one dollar reno tier we've got alain renee's last year at marionbad from 1961 we've got jacques tati making another appearance this time with mon oncle from 1958 and then finally Rene clement's purple moon from the year 1960 those are the movies that are on sale at this particular blizzardy sale. Um, you've got nine dollarinos to to spend. Um, I see Jason with his hand raised. He either has a purchase ready or he has a very important clarifying question. Um, oh no! So I will leave the floor open for either. I have yeah, picked Jason. out everything. I have had my wallet open and closed. I have exact change. I will need nothing more. I don't even need to say the words to the woman to buy these things. Just point it. Unrealistic because in any real garage sale, Jason would barter uh, and spend a lot of time trying to lower these prices. Anywhere I go, but in this case. <laughs> 
I'm willing. I mean, honestly, the lowest tier we have last year, Mary in bed, uh, Mononcle and purple noon, all like complete steals. I mean, everything here is a steal, obviously, but like for even the like fake valuation dollarinos we've got on these, that is the lowest number of dollarinos I've ever heard for movies of that quality. But I have yeah, my selection. The, uh, the um, uh, negligence of the letterbox user population paying dividends for yes. the trial of population. Just it is indeed. I appreciate, yes. I appreciate all of you stupid fucking bastards who use <laughs> letterbox. Uh, my selections for today are going to be clear from five to seven at $4, which brings me down to $5. Am I right? Uh, yep. That math checks out. I'm going to t- select, um, don't look now, uh, because I was genuinely surprised by that movie and still a bit freaked out by it every time I watch it. That uh, was your, correct me if you're, sorry, correct me if, if I'm wrong. Was that your 666 movie logged on Letterboxd? Was I that the whole discussion that I remember? So I think I tweeted about this at the time. Amazing. I remember it being uh, yeah. momentous, but I don't remember 666. That is probably right though. You are better with numbers than I am. It was that uh, face uh, that uh, all what's his name makes when he's doing that point haunts my dreams about that movie. <laughs> Real good. Uh, so that should bring me down to $2 left. No, $3 because I have yet another. Okay. Yep. Yep. I'm going to go for, hmm, I knew I said I had a, I'm going to go for a mononcle at the $1 tier uh, because that's just too much fun. And certified copy at the $2 tier nice. uh, because I still okay. have never seen it. Cool. I'm writing these down in the background. I don't really know why. I think it's just muscle memory at this point. I appreciate yeah. it. No, I, <laughs> no I, I, right I, answers. I, it makes me feel like somebody cares. So sure. I appreciate sure. it. Uh, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, murder mystery uh, remains untouched on the shelf. No, that's that's uh, perfectly understandable. Uh, pretty good selection. You got four four movies out of the deal. Um, you've appeased the nice older lady, um, and she's yeah she. Um, I don't even know what she gives you an Italian sub on, on Rye uh, in, in celebration. Hey, uh, it looks like Harry might be next up in, in the queue here. He's uh, got his purchases in the checkout line. He looks very proud of himself as he strolls up to the table, plops down uh, his purchases, and he says... Sorry, <laughs> I've, ahead. I don't I've know never doing. looked proud of myself. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I thought we'd save the best for last. Um... Cody, I have a pet theory that you, as always, created this uh, to give me one fewer dollar, Reno, than I should have. Because I, if I had one more, I would be so happy. I would be perfectly content. But instead, you torture me with this. I want to hear about it. I want to hear about all of this. Let's, yeah, lay right, down well, what you got. I'm doing Clio for $4, obviously. Um, can't miss that. Uh, much apologies to the good, the bad, and the ugly, but that movie's like three and a half hours long, and I've seen it like ten thousand times. Um, number two is going to be twenty forty six Wong Kar Wai's unsung masterpiece, of course. Uh, particularly brutal that that was apparently produced in Italy. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but hey, there it is. Um, then uh, because I didn't have, I you know I wanted certified copy desperately, but. Uh, in the face of both last year at Marion Bad and Mount Enclay being in the $1 tier, I had to go with those two instead. Either one of those, maybe, wouldn't have stood up. Uh, that's a lie. I like Marion Bad more than Certified Copy. But uh, together, I just, you know, I had to do those. So yeah, I did Cleo from 5 to 7, 2046, last year at Marion Bad and Mount Enclay, And I uh, stare longingly at Certified Copy on my way out. 
Dang. Yeah. It, certified copy, not necessarily your copy following the conclusion of hey. this sale, but um, it is what it is. Uh, Kelly, can you top that? Just kidding. I just got done saying there are no right answers in this, but I'm curious to hear what you selected at the sale. <laughs> well, I too have a hard time leaving behind good, bad, and ugly because I love a spaghetti Western. And also pretty sad i'm gonna leave don't look now because i feel like we need to uh really 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 wrap the the cinematic sex scenes lately <laughs> i'm very pro uh so the ones i'm gonna pick i gotta do suspiria i gotta take suspiria it's just such a cool movie it's been with me for so long i love goblin just like everything about it's so cool uh, I gotta do Les Samurai. That is one of my top movies of all time. I could never leave that one behind. Even if that was $9 by itself, that's what I would buy. <laughs> and uh, and this is not going to surprise you based on these last comments. Purple Noon. I gotta do Hell it. Hell yeah. <laughs> like wow. Looking so that's, good. That's wild. The ones that I picked for Kelly were the right ones. I got them all right. What a coincidence. Wow. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Wow. Uh, pretty good picks all around. Um, I had a feeling that a lot of the fives and the fours would be left on the shelf. I, I, I tried to find a way to get myself to feel um, like most optimal coming out of the sale with Cleo from five to seven. Couldn't pull the trigger. What I did move forward with, um, I got Le Samurai in two or four six at the, the three dollar Reno tier. And then I cleaned the bottom shelf, all of the one dollar Reno yeah. slash yep. Marion Bad, Monon Clay, um, uh, which my favorite of the Jacques Tati's. I know I'm just rehashing the conversation that we had during the Tati. Um, I, I think of Aaron were here who'd say, or Charm is far superior. But the answer is Mononcle and then Purple Noon. Just a lot of fun. A lot of, I mean, Alain Delon, one of the hottest people who've ever lived. And he's sweaty and sunburnt the whole movie. Dude, that fucking fish market scene. Oh, cinema fucking masterpiece. Yeah, cinema at its best for sure. Um, yeah, no, that's, uh, well, okay. I'm glad. I think we can all come away, uh, from that sale very, very, um, you know, satisfied and satisfactory, uh, satisfactory. You know, speaking of, uh, spaghetti westerns, a plate of spaghetti. Um, hey, Italian food. Uh, following Snowpocalypse 20, February 2023. Um, I think that would be the only proverbial, uh, icing on the cake. But, uh, that's all I had for Revolverage sale. Um, thank you all for making your purchases and making an old lady happy. Thank you. Thank you, Cody. Yeah, I'm glad hey, that you have multiple copies of each That's the first time that the um, ignorance of Letterboxd users has ever benefited us. So that's a nice change. That's right. Mm-hmm. We did it. This is the beginning of a trend. Uh, and I must say that I hope this is the continuance of a trend because if I can make everybody feel terrible for a moment, the last time we did that garage sale game was one year and a week ago. Oh, my 50, God. 55 yeah. episodes of this podcast ago. I'm not going to lie to you. Part of what gave me the idea was I was going through Time Hop and was like, hey, one year ago, you did this dumb thing called car garage sale. It's Jonathan Time Hop with his weird gravelly voice. He's like, say, that could be something fun to bring back. Also, fuck, this was a year ago. Jesus H. You know, though, a year ago being 55 episodes, you got to give it up for all of us, mostly Jason, for the fact that we barely ever miss episodes. That's pretty impressive, Jason. Barely, but not never. Uh, 
Right. <laughs> Speaking of which, episode 160 about Kagimusha, 1980, one of the better late Kurosawa films. We re- recorded that with Peter, Peter Hoganson, filmmaker himself, who uh, was a wonderful guest on that episode. Go back and check that out, listener. Yeah. And go back and check out every episode that Kelly's ever been on, which I'm going to not not to make a fool of myself. I'm going to Google it right now to make sure that you can see what episode <laughs> she's been on. We what are started you Googling? With, I'm not Googling. I'm pod, podcast oh. casting. <laughs> but Wings of Desire, Arribato parentheses rapture and phantom of the paradise we have all featured kelly krantz our wonderful guest from today uh where else can people find you kelly find me on twitter at kranzakaga underscore and letterbox at lucky haas excellent uh thank you and come back soon there's a lot of great stuff playing at the trial and we hope you'll jump on one or two or more of those series from this year uh and if anybody's listening that wants to talk about movies like those check out the schedule at the trial on our trialon.org pick yourself up a cool little calendar join the trial on club you'll get one sent right to you with a discount card and all other sorts of cool shit uh and then get in touch with us at trial of podcast on twitter or at trial of podcast at gmail.com uh, on your favorite email browser provider. Uh, and, you know, get in touch with me if you should feel like it um, at Nintendoofus on Twitter, uh, but only after you've done all of the other prerequisite things I've mentioned here. Follow the order of operations. Order of operations. Nice. Uh, I watched this movie, Revolver, on the same day that I watched the movie 48 Hours for the first time, and I didn't really know what Revolver was. Um, but for those who have any idea what either of these movies are about, uh, pretty accidentally great double yeah, feature. Serendipity. One, yeah. And yeah, so that's just wanted to, to float that out there. Um, if you have an un, if you have room in your schedule for an unlikely double feature, maybe consider that one um, or do what you want. Um, eat some spaghetti or something. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being here. Uh, mm, that's the stuff, hostess. I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, I'm Harry Mackin. I have no movie recommendations. I haven't been watching a lot of movies because I've been playing a lot of video games. Hello. Uh, I would just like to shout out that Like a Dragon Ishin came out just recently, and it is a great video game that you should all play. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter to talk to me about it, or if you must, movies at Shiitake Harry. I kind of want to give a double feature too. Please, please hit it <laughs> so up. There's a movie called uh, Sitting Target with Oliver Reed and uh, Ian McShane, and it's a British crime movie. And I was absolutely conflating it with Revolver in my mind when I was like, oh, there's so many visually striking scenes. I hope the print's really good, blah, blah. And afterwards, I was like, those were all in Sitting Target. So watch Revolver, which is great, and then watch Sitting Target too. Uh, if, I can, if I can ask one clarifying question about Sitting Target. So, at, at, this is my first, maybe my first Oliver Reed movie I've ever seen that I, I, where I knew I was seeing him. Um, on a scale of like dead person to Oliver Reed, how Oliver Reed is he in this movie that we've just seen? Dude, and then how Oliver Reed is person. he in, in I was going to say, this is such a good he question. Crazy. Like goes like Ken Russell's The Devils. He goes like the first thing that Kelly said after we left the theater. She was like, "Wow, Oliver Reed was pretty restrained in this movie." And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Oh my god! Yes, see anything that he is in with Ken Russell, but yeah, he can go very hard. And I, it's The Devils is very hard to find because it was like super banned because it's Mm. extremely blasphemous. And there's like a million cuts. It's hard to find out like what's the right one. It's even hard to like buy any copies uh, other than a pirated one. But uh, yeah, he, he can. 
He's he's really great. Okay, I look forward to finding uh, Charles Bronson as uh, as as Oliver Reed in Sitting Targets. Uh, but thank you for the recommendation, Kelly. Uh, bring more of those to your next episode. If you, I, I assume you've got just this library of movies going on in your head, and if anything ever triggers more thoughts, it's up to you. Uh, thank you so much for being on, Kelly. Um, usually this is where we have a little bit of quiet time, but I'm just going to keep talking until Cody uh, feels inappropriate to start. Uh, uh, <clears throat> In the words of one Frederick Zoller, it's been a pleasure chatting with a fellow cinema lover. He's from Inglorious Bastards. It's, it's, this is good. It's a bit. It's a pretty good bit. You, you, now you, you have get to, it? Now you, have, now you have to play that song at the end of the episode, Jason. Jason.